0: Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail... The convictions of the appellant are quashed.
1: I'm so, so relieved that finally um, he's been exonerated. He didn't live to hear it, but today Peter Ellis had his convictions for child sex abuse quashed. Because he's had... It was 30 years, it was three decades of him trying to clear his name. On Friday, the Supreme Court found Peter Ellis suffered a miscarriage of justice. The memories of the children had become contaminated through questions from parents, and the psychiatrist Karen Zellis' evidence departed from appropriate standards. I think it's really bittersweet for a lot of people. His brother just texts me, saying you know in some ways there are no winners and that he wishes peter and his mother were here and that he was such a special and unique person
0: he died a um crest Christ child abuser which he never was and it's sad that he got remembered that way
1: and it's really equally upsetting that his mother has just recently died who stood by him for such a long time Nearly 30 years
0: after he was sent to jail for 16 child sex offences at the Christchurch civic creche, the Supreme Court has quashed the convictions of Peter Ellis. Now, for the first time, footage of interviews with Peter, done in secret by Newsroom's Investigations editor Melanie Reid, has been released.
1: At the time, I practically lived at the Christchurch courthouse covering the Ellis story for TV3. At night, I would visit Peter at his house. We would smoke cigarettes and drink sherry on his veranda. I was the only journalist he ended up talking to in the 90s. The 50 tapes of those
0: interviews that she dug out of a rubbish bin and kept in her garage are now part of a seven-episode newsroom documentary called Peter Alice, The Crash Case and Me. I talked to Mel about how she would go from the press bench in court reporting the case to sipping sherry and smoking cigarettes with Peter at home in a city possessed by ritual sexual abuse panic that was sweeping the world. Her experience is still so sharp in her mind she speaks of him as if he's still
1: alive. He is an extraordinary person, actually, and he's kind of quite wild and flamboyant, and he always sort of operated a little bit on the edge, but he was a very kind man, and he was a very thoughtful man. And I think about some of the things that he did. Like, when he went to prison, he, he didn't like the fact that on Christmas Day, the kids would come and see their dads, and their dads didn't have presents to give their kids. So he made me and all my friends, every Christmas, organise this massive present run to take out to the prison in Christchurch. There was quite a detailed list of what we needed. This many for boys, this many for girls, this age group. It was extensive. So that when these kids that were the children of prisoners would come to the prison they all got a gift from their dads that Peter Alice had organised and just about drove me insane <laughs> trying to sort it out. Um, you know, and, and that in itself, the fact that he,
0: he was a convicted paedophile and he went to prison, and the impression that we all got is that paedophiles are
1: so badly treated in prison but not the case for him. Not at all. Um, I remember asking him about this in one of my many interviews and also talking to another man that had been in prison as well and they said no, he had no trouble at all. He was highly, highly regarded. Right from the beginning? Yeah, well he was always trying to help them and I remember once going out to see him in prison and he was like, look, you sit here and you watch them some of these people signing their names and all they can do is put an X and they all should be learning to read in here and we need a library and he was always trying to improve the conditions. Was he ever bitter? No, I mean, I, I remember saying to him once, do you ever wake up and think it would be quite good today to not be Peter Alice?" And he said no, thank you very much, Melanie. I'm quite happy being Peter Ellis because he was just under so much pressure. You no, know, And he was just always that guy that was labelled the child abuser, which is the worst thing in the world you can be labelled.
0: I hope one day that they're actually going to be prepared to come along and say, hello, Peter, can you tell me, did we get it wrong? And I'll tell them. They got it wrong because it didn't happen. Can we go right back to the beginning? Um, because in your series, you say you practically lived at the courthouse when when the trial was going on. And then at night, you visited him at his house. I mean, what, why? How did all this begin? I mean, most, most journalists, especially back then, this whole case was so tainted in so many ways. What made you
1: connect with him? Well, I think the first thing that we need to remember is that this was the biggest, most unstoppable case for a journalist. It was like an unstoppable beast. It just kept going and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more extraordinary to the point that you were going, this is just like some sort of crazy you know, novel that we're all involved in. It was never out of the news for about two years. And, and were you covering it from
0: the beginning
1: yeah, because you were you were a young reporter in christ you i were... was i was twenty Six and twenty-seven in 1992 and 1993, when this was like wasn't just the biggest story in Christchurch, it was the biggest story in New Zealand. Nobody could believe it that Peter Ellis had been accused of abusing just multiple, multiple children. I think there was over a hundred kids that went through um, the evidential interviews. It was like this mass hysteria, and then not only that, they charged four women creche workers as well and this is when it was starting to get like surreal. The controversy ensnared Gay Davidson and three other women who worked at the creche. Their homes were raided looking for evidence of bizarre acts of abuse the police could never prove. We were supposed
0: to put children in microwaves and have people coming through concrete ceilings and taking them to the qe 2 and throwing them in the pool. Do you remember the first
1: time this came out? I think the first alarm bells went off in December 1991 when um, an accusation was made, but then the case was closed down because they did formal interviews with a number of kids and nobody came forward. So the case was closed... But what had happened, and people forget this, is that the the policeman in charge of the inquiry, Detective Collinied, went to the council who ran the crash because it was a Christchurch Civic crash. His exact words were, "He shouldn't be, you know, supervising children. We we don't think he should be." So yes, we've closed down the case. Yes, there's, you know, there is no evidence, but he shouldn't be working with children. So on the advice of the police. The, the city council said that he was going to be suspended and Peter said, well, no, I want my job back. They offered him $10,000 to go away and he said, no, I want my job back. I mean, we always thought that the crash case could well have gone away mm. had he not kept pushing for his job. This is before he was even charged. But what I'm saying is, in 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 a nutshell, that... Somebody came along and accused him, and that somebody was sort of involved in this satanic abuse that was kind of going wild all around the world, etc. The large-scale ritual sexual abuse panic that had been sweeping the world landed in central Christchurch. Author Lynnie Hood described it as collective delusion and called Christchurch a city possessed. It was a fairly overheated climate that it just took one allegation
0: like a, a match to a tinder-dry
1: landscape and off it went. There was all these stories like there was a story on the Holmes show with Karen Zellis, who was the head psychiatrist and she was sort of telling everyone not to panic and there's, we're setting up interviewing situations for people to go and um, there's going to be specialist interviews set up and all this is like a week before Peter Ellis had even been arrested, so at the end of March, on Peter Ellis's birthday, was the first time he ever saw a policeman, and yeah, they came and picked him up and charged him with a decently assaulting a girl who had never attended the crash, and then there were more charges started piling up. There was this massive pre-trial hearing, and how was it reported well. at the time? I have to say this: every time his name was mentioned. It was the openly gay childcare worker, Peter Alice, which, when you look back at it, I mean, well, I did it. We all did it. Do you think the fact that you are gay, and quite obviously gay, I don't want you to take that the wrong way, but do you think that you're an easy target? Look at it from a public perspective.
0: From a public... It depends on on, on people's attitudes. I mean, nowadays, people's attitudes towards gay people are changing. Uh, they're realising that that, um, that what happens in the bedroom doesn't affect your work or your job or um, how you relate to other people.
1: We all did it. All why? Everyone in the media. What, what, why? Uh, I don't know why. I've thought about it. The Homosexual Law Reform Bill was passed, I think, 1986. Mm. And so we're in Christchurch... Quite a conservative city, and Peter was unashamedly gay, and he made no secrets whatsoever of it. And I think back then, a lot of people did, and it was kind of like an affront almost. It felt like he was an affront, you know, to the police. I mean, the police were so homophobic, it wasn't even funny. They didn't even pretend that they weren't. You know, they would go on the home show saying that, the, that we're uh, reaping the repercussions of liberalism. I mean, it was a pretty extraordinary time. And we were all back there and we were all in it. And I think that's how our editors, I think that's just how everybody was. What is it like... Walking around with child abuse charges of an extremely horrific nature against your name.
0: Well, I can't answer that because I know I didn't do it.
1: Are you a pedophile?
0: No, I'm not a pedophile.
1: Have you ever had sexual relations with young children?
0: No, I've never had a sexual relationship with young children. And the thought is abhorrent.
1: So did that taint your... It tainted him everywhere. Me describing him as openly gay, everyone else in the media describing him as openly gay, the whole country describing him as openly gay, tainted him absolutely. I mean, it's terrible. It's shameful. Did you think that he was guilty? Well, it's just a description of him. You know, I remember I was reviewed once in a paper back then, and they said that I was kind of scruffy and overweight. Well, you know, you wouldn't say that now, would you? (laughs) I mean, it was just, you have to go back. It was probably true, but you (laughs) wouldn't... It was just a very different world. If you reported on him in that way, I'm just trying to think. How did you connect with him, though? Um, I I became really quite friendly with him. I became fond of him as well, like as a friendship. Well, as soon as I started spending any time with him, I mean, I wasn't drinking sherry with him every night, but we we used to do it on Friday nights, and he used to do it quite often. But this was while you were covering the court case, right? Well, I'm. Yes, I really wanted to, to do an interview with him, but in the course of actually getting him to trust me, I drank quite a lot of sherry with him and smoked a hell of a lot of cigarettes. And In so, his house. Inside. <laughs> and on his veranda. But he was very charismatic and he was very funny and he was quite wild for a girl like me from Central Otago. You know, he wore, you know, head scarves around and eyeliner and, you know, he, w- he was sort of said things that were designed to sort of shock you and he was quite a different type of person that I was used to being around. So yeah. while you were reporting on yeah. the case, you also had a very strong friendship. Yes, but I don't think it affected my reporting because I was there was I was mainly in this sort of support role, if you like, reporting. It's happened to me in quite a lot of my career that I can actually put myself into this kind of strange kind of neutral mode. I, I just report what's happening in court. It's not like now where. You write opinion pieces about what you think. It's a very straight. This is what happened in court today. This is what the prosecution said. This is what the Crown said. This is what the defence said. Right. So, so the whole motive
0: of you g- getting to know him at, uh, and making friends with him was so that you could secure an interview. But along the way, you somehow you became good friends. Is that how? I,
1: I wouldn't say at the time I was good friends with him, but I warmed to him. Yeah. And. I kind of really liked the fact that he loved animals, and that he was so nice to um, his mother and his grandmother, and he was a very kind person. Then I just said, "Look, if you, if we do do this interview, you know, I I'll, I'll do everything that I can to make sure that, you know, what you say is put out there, and that, and that even if you go to jail, that we can keep telling your story because we'll have these interviews. So in those days, we used to I did it quite a few times." We used to um, secretly interview people because obviously there's a sub-judice rule that you can't do any interviews because the court case is going on. And then once they were found guilty or not guilty, then we'd actually come out and have the interviews. Mm. And I would always say, well, there's no point having a whole lot of things to say once you're in jail because we can't get to you. Were you convinced of his innocence or did you? Had you
0: formed an opinion by then?
1: Not really. Mm. I just think I was completely confused, like the rest of New Zealand. I think much more back then, we kind of believed that. You know, it was very much where there's smoke, there's fire, and surely they can't be pouring all these resources, and, you know, there's, there's hundreds of kids being interviewed, there's, you know, half a million dollars in ACC that's gone, I mean, something somewhere, something's happened here, it can't be just all a fabrication. I remember we I worked with Mark Jennings back then and he'd been working in Melbourne and he'd came over and another colleague of mine good colleague of mine was Jeff Hampton and I remember going to this meeting that the police had called for us to go and they had sort of whiteboards and flow charts and I think when they left Mark and Jeff and uh, just went this is just the most uh, ridiculous Thing that we've ever heard of. That you know, because what people forget as well is that at one point, the police wanted to not only arrest the four his four women co-workers, they wanted to arrest more women that worked at the creche, and they also wanted to arrest Peter's mother. So that's when you know Mark and Jeff and people that I work with down in TV Three in Christchurch were like, "This is actually getting a bit mad." And I remember the police, they just they raided all these houses and they just took hundreds of videos because they decided that the kids had all been videoed. So they took everyone's videos out of all of these houses. I mean, it was just, when I think back on it, I just need to go and have a lie down. And...
0: But now you've got all these hours of
1: footage from, from your visits with him. What, over those three years? No, it was mainly over a year, mid-1992, Uh, through until when he went to jail. I was with him the uh, night before he was sent off to jail. How many hours of footage have you got from that? I've got 50 beta tapes, yeah, that were thrown out at TV3. I know. There's a story, I mean, (laughs) there's a story in itself. I watched these tapes being put into those dumpster bins and went, they're all my interviews with Peter Ellis, like the whole big section of my life. It felt really personal, and it was when they were digitising everything and everything was being biffed, and all the field tapes were being biffed. So I took all Peter's tapes and hit my interviews with him. And you stored them in your garage all this time, thinking what? I don't know what I thought. I just thought you're not taking those precious tapes with Peter. It felt really insulting to him, and it felt really insulting to me.
0: The 10-year sentence was greeted with a great deal of
1: satisfaction by parents and police.
0: The 12-member panel convicted Ellis on 16 of the 25 charges he faced.
1: When I look back on this, I feel like I'm in some sort of strange novel where everybody's got swept up in some sort of cult, almost, believing that there's satanic ritual abusers in our midst and they've been in our creches and they've be, they're have they going to go into our schools and everyone's a potential abuser and all the kids are at risk. That's what it felt like. And everybody was talking about it? Everybody was talking about it and everybody had an opinion on it. And it was so implausible, but it was like it the implausible became plausible as we went day after day after day into the courts, as we sat through... A, a pre-trial hearing, uh, which went on for 11 weeks. And then the judge said there's enough evidence to go to trial. And so it was almost like they forced this truth onto us that wasn't even true. Mm. It felt like reality had been recreated and it had become a truth. And when you sat there, and i remember, I'll never forget the judge, when Peter was... Um, the verdict came out and the jury said guilty 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 and he said I agree with that poor old Peter who was brought up by quite a religious mum as well Mrs Ellis are you convinced that your son is innocent completely convinced my son is innocent she always said well I'm just going to pray and we're going to fight as a family we will fight as a family to get him released to jail what was it like for you hearing his sentence this morning I prayed And I just thought, oh, God, you poor honey. He actually never believed that he'd go to jail. He didn't believe he'd get found guilty simply because he hadn't done it.
0: I know I'm innocent and, again, naive, I suppose. Everyone's going to eventually rationalise this somehow. I mean, and I hope they do.
1: I was at his house the night before the verdict and I said, you know, what do you think? And he said, I think my lawyer did a very good job and, you know, there's, there's many on the jury and... And, and I think it's going to be all right. In those days, it was like if you were gay, you were a pedophile. Mm. And the, the whole country thought, well, the woman might not have done it, but surely he's done something. And I just thought, poor Peter. He believed in the police. He believed in the justice system. And he said it to me, you know, early on, that he believed that the truth would prevail. Did he ever waver from...
0: Saying he was innocent, because I know he was under a lot of pressure, wasn't he? and he could have, he could have got out of prison early if he had made that admission.
1: And they tried to plea bargain with him. Oh, they did. Oh yeah. Um, never, ever, ever did he waver. He never, ever, ever flinched from the day he was charged until the day he died. Did you? In terms of the conviction, I was really like, I'm sure this is wrong. I wasn't, I'm 100% sure Mm. that this is wrong. But then the young girl in 1994 who recanted at his Court of Appeal hearing.
0: Mel recently interviewed the woman who, as a nine-year-old, was the star complainant in the case, and the woman's voice has been distorted to hide her identity for legal reasons.
1: I was often told that my testimony was the strongest testimony, that I was the reason that he was put into jail, that, and so yeah. I guess like it was living with a lot of guilt, you know. I also spoke to her family and I got a real perspective on the pressure and, you know, how the Crown Prosecutor had come to their house to get them to, be part of the case the interviews I can particularly remember the woman who was interviewing me, and you know she was giving me all these dolls with genitals and stuff, so I remember them holding like these dolls and saying, "You know show us with this doll where he touched you, and this sort of thing and like, <laughs> they were leading questions for sure. The police were there, there was counselling support, there was ACC support, and they said that it was just so crazy and they all just sort of got swept up in it. And so I had the advantage of having some perspective quite early on because I had quite a lot of interaction with that family. What was it like to meet her for this interview that you've done? I was quite upset by her because she's just so devastated about it all, since 1994, we're now nearly 30 years down the track, nobody has been to see her. No one from the Justice Department, no one from the courts, no one has said to her in any of these inquiries, in any of these appeals, hey, can we just have a conversation with you? And I think that's a disgrace. She's lived with this her whole adult life, feeling uh, guilty that if it hadn't been for her, maybe he wouldn't have gone to jail.
0: What have you learnt from this case? If it was
1: happening today, would it even get to the court? You know, the I police... think that what happened is that late in the 90s, the interviewing standards in New Zealand um, stipulate that there can only be one interview and uh, no anatomical dolls. And also, the crash case, there was no medical evidence, no forensic evidence, no corroborating evidence. I mean, it was just like a bloody fantasy. Mm. But I think the other thing I've really understood being someone who's been involved in a case for a long time is that this, the Crown spend a lot of money and a lot of time protecting their own decisions. So if you are trying to fight for your innocence like Peter Ellis was, you're up against a very, very big army. So there are ministerial inquiries, there are appeals, no one talked to the girl that retracted. The ministerial inquiry was so narrow, it was a waste of time. It was like it was like such a hot potato, no one wanted to touch it. If you were innocent, like Peter Ellis was, he never gave up, but it was everybody tried. People have tried and tried and tried. That's it for today.
0: I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Mark Jennings and Sarah Robson. And thanks to Melanie Reid, Kakite kite Ano.